we're all done there, so let's go ahead and work through these. So, uh, true and false, firstly. Uh, wrath is an attribute of God. False. 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 And reason is why. Why Why did we say that? Compare it to love. He doesn't have to exercise his wrath if there's no sin. Right. right, so it's not a constant attribute in him, it's only in the presence of sin, so it's an expression of his holiness it's a disposition of his holiness rather than an attribute very good secondly, God is always equitable in his dealings with his creatures false false you got <laughs> yeah, well so when we say equitable, we say God always treats everyone the same okay and uh, as we're going to see tonight, you know, Esau I loved, or excuse me, right. Jacob I love, Esau I hated. And so he doesn't deal with them equitably. That's part of the question we have to address tonight. Why is this the case? How can this be the case if God is, God's love is infinite? But God does not, God doesn't love everyone into heaven. Uh, so uh, he doesn't, he's, now he's always, he's always just in that he always, uh, if, if if something is deserved, he always gives it, but we don't deserve any uh, special treatment to bring us into heaven, and so that's not something he's obliged to do equally for everyone. So define faithfulness here. I put God's adherence to His righteous standard. That's very good. Very good. Yeah. So it's it's not. I mean, that's not word for word, but it's. But I'm actually I'm actually happier with that than with a word for word answer because you've you've, you've captured the idea there, and that's that's good. So it's it's his. How did I put it? It's trustworthiness to act or perform in accordance with His words, promise. So He acts in righteousness. So that's what faithfulness is: righteousness in action. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> and number four, my trick question for the night here, I suppose. <laughs> so why does God love us? Yeah, that's probably the best answer we can come up with. But we certainly don't what I certainly don't want to hear is that he has to. What was the answer? But because he loves us. Because he loves us. Oh, I just put because he chose us. Right, and I th- and I think that's yeah, it's effectively the same thing, yes. Uh, but I want to make sure it's not because he has to, because we've met some sort of condition necessary for him to love us. Uh, but yeah, because that was the question asked: Why did why did God set His love upon His people Israel? And the answer was because He did. It was it was something He did voluntarily, uh, with, for no reason in the object love, but because of some impulse within Himself. It's just a voluntary motion of his will. Okay? Good, good. Some good answers tonight. Well, let's go back here to our notes then, and we are talking about the love of God. I think we talked about the uh, the uh, character of God's love in five terms, all starting with self, a self-communication, a self-sacrifice, Something that's selfless, something self-induced, voluntary, and also something that is self-referencing. It always must be carried out in righteousness. So it's it's always in view of the rest of his attributes. 
that he ex- exercises his love. So that's the character of his love, and brings us then to the uh, point here tonight. Is next is the objects of Christ, God's love, and I'm, I'm going to suggest here that when we see the idea of love in Scripture, it's always with reference to personal beings beings that are in the image of God. He doesn't technically love rocks and trees, even animals. I mean, he does so compassion towards them. But he doesn't technically love them. Instead, God's love is centered on those that reflect his image back. So, to reproduce his character and attributes. In terms of, uh, uh, here's Erickson's statement here, he loves that which participates in the greatness of goodness of himself. He loves himself in us. Burkov loves rational creatures for his own sake or to express it otherwise. He loves in them himself, his virtues, works, and gifts because uh, he himself is actually really the only thing worthy of love. Uh, uh, Augustine is famous for making a statement along these lines as well. Specifically, he loves Jesus Christ, his son. Christ says, you love me before the creation of the world. He loves believers who reflect and show love towards his son, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son who can separate us from the love of God. So, yeah, he loves people who are conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, John 16, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So there's a there's a reciprocating kind of action here that uh, uh, God loves those who exhibit his own, his own uh, attributes and that uh, finite expression of, uh, whereby he communicates some of his attributes to us. He loves Israel. He loved Israel with the result that inevitably they will follow him. He cannot relax his love until this happens. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, and so since he loves them, he must uh, per- perpetuate in that. A world of sinners. John three sixteen. here, right? God loves sinners. God so loved the world. He was only beloved Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, so uh, He He loves them because of His His action towards them, because they are persons in His image. There's really no way to twist this to mean the world of the elect. And I would say that God, in some sense, God's atoning work has some benefits for everyone, irrespective of whether they are the elect. There's there's something contained in the atonement for all all persons in God's image. Otherwise, there would be really no <clears throat> uh, moral basis here for him doing anything kind to anyone. So that that's uh, the idea of common grace, the graces of God that are extended to those who do not accept him. Uh, and uh, what what is the basis for them? Well, we've already said that God's love is self-referencing. It has to be with respect to his holy character, and so therefore there must be something in that atonement that makes it possible for God to extend even this muted expression of love uh, towards uh, those who are non-elect. Okay, so God loves 
uh, in some sense, the world. And again, I, I don't think we can sort of scramble those words to make them to mean just the world of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the world of the elect. Okay, I mean, maybe con- in contrast to uh, to Israel, but I uh, but I still think we've got here a statement that love extends, uh, in some sense, universally to all all humans. Okay, we could we'll talk about that more later on when we talk about uh, atonement. I think next semester we'll talk about that with uh, doctrine of Christ. So persons are loved. Now, let's talk a little bit about some objections here to what we've already said. Some of them already have come up, so let's see if we can work through them. First objection here is that if God loves sinners, how can he simultaneously hate sinners? And lest there be any question, let's affirm here that he does actually say this, right? Uh, I know sometimes the, uh, the thought is that God... Loves the sin, or loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Uh, but we've got many passages in which we find that God hates the sinner too. So that's and that's that's where we sort of balk a little bit. So Psalm five, five and six: The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The Lord abhors. That's rather strong word. Chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 11. Start your way through the Psalms and you come across across a number of these. God is a righteous God who expresses his wrath every day. Psalm 11, then verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul loathes. so the language here that's used, loathing and abhorring, I, I didn't look up the the Hebrew words here, but uh, it, it even seems to, and uh, at least the English translators are really trying to intensify this. It's not just hatred; it's loathing and abhorrence, uh, which seem a little bit stronger to us than uh, basic hatred. But so he hates sinners, not just sin, but sinners. So how do we? How do we? How do we? Uh, uh, I mean, we just said that God loves, in some sense, the world of sinners, at least to some degree. So how is it that he can hate them and love them at the same time? That's the question. I said, well, some would contend that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. These passages clearly say otherwise. You can't legitimately extricate the sinner from the sin, which so merits God's wrath. God is not angry at sin so that he punishes the sin itself, he punishes the people who sin. I mean, that's the wrath of God poured out, uh, not on the idea of sin, but on the commission of sin and and the committers of sin. So as passionate creatures, this is hard for us to fathom, because when we say hate or loathe or abhor, uh, we can't imagine that we can love at the same time. And, and because we're passionate, that's hard. Um, Perhaps, you know, the closest thing perhaps I can think of is perhaps uh, uh, if, you're, if you're chastising a, a child, for instance, who has is, who is, uh, done something wrong and uh, bring them and stand them in front of you, you know, when they're little or something, and they, they stand in front of you and you say, you've done something wrong. But 
that I have to spank you. And, uh, you know, assuming you're in one of those situations where you haven't lost control, uh, you know, w- what are you doing? You're, you're, you're swatting them. You're, you're, you're extending your wrath against them, which by definition here would be an expression of hatred, an impassionate hatred, but it's a, it's an expression of your wrath. That's necessary because of their sin. All the while, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, this and doing this because this is this is the best possible thing that I can do for this kid. Um, and so, you know, perhaps, perhaps that comes about as close as I can to saying, here's here's an example of someone loving and hating at the same time. Since God is a dispassionate God, I think that that works even better. For us, that our that little feeble analogy there uh, does so. So I think there is a, a possibility that God can love and hate simultaneously without without violating His character. Any 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 thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> uh, the thoughts that I have is that. And maybe this is, you know, the the spanking analogy. I don't know if it quite fits in the sense that when I spank my kid, I spank them because I love them. I want what's best for them. Um, but God, because He's all knowing, in a sense, He knows that this this sinner is not going to repent. So, well. Not always. I mean, some of these people in these contexts could possibly, but yeah, go ahead. Right, but he's all knowing. I mean, he knows if they're going to repent right. or not. So, were they not elected? Well, I mean, it's 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 hard to know. I mean, I, I assume that these are, you know, these are permanently this way. But it, I guess there's at least a sense in which it's a possibility that any of these people. I'm just thinking for God to hate. God would hate for somebody who doesn't, who's uh, who's unrepentant and will not repent. So they're, I mean, they're an enemy mm-hmm. unless he regenerates them. Right. But even here, you're you're getting an expression of divine love. What is it? Second uh, uh, Peter three, for instance, where we find that God is not slack concerning his promise. Right. The, the King James word I couldn't think of. God is not slow concerning his promise. And so the question is, why doesn't God, you know, simply judge? Why doesn't he simply come back and judge evil, uh, you know, punish all these evildoers and then be done with it? And the answer is, well, even though his wrath stands over and against those persons, he's also long-suffering and not not desiring that anybody would would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so it's Seems like he, it's 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 a, an expression of divine mercy, divine love. Uh, all the while, there's this realization that these people will eventually feel the wrath of God. So, yeah, but I guess the hard thing for us is because we think when we think of hate, it's like Arr! you know, it just right. you know, but but that's not the way it is. It's it's that's it's a dispassionate kind of thing. That's why I try and bring that. The kid illustration in there because, yeah. and that's that's well, what I'm trying to see. You know, Jacob, he loved Esau, he hated him. He said that at the birth. Mm-hmm. So, how could he say that at birth if 
you know, he hasn't really done it at that point. Right. Well, well, yeah. I mean, he has. I mean, he's born a sinner. Yeah, I mean, he is still born a sinner, even yeah. though he hadn't yet done anything right, right. wrong. Right. He's still, he's still, he's still born under the wrath of God because of his. That's because of the growing sin, but original sin. But but can he? He can hate because he knows. He can hate because it's ultimate. just. He can he can he, he can hate any person who's born because it's a just thing for him. Right. In fact, he does. Anyone is abiding under the wrath of God until such time as they right. express faith and repentance. But we're we're elected before we're born. True. That doesn't mean we don't. Res- so can God, in that same sense, say, when we were born, the right? Yeah. Us? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we can. The wrath abides on on such a person until such time as they express faith unto salvation. So it's not as though we're eternally justified. Uh, we live for for years, perhaps, and. In sin, and so therefore, under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God, um, you know, think of the Ninevites, for instance. They're under the wrath of God. They're ready to be punished, and then they repent. So, so that's when the uh, extension of the of the love is. is so how would we <laughs> how would we define hate, though? Because obviously, well, it's yeah, the kind of hate that we right the same way that I did wrath here that it's a disposition of God that that, that emanates from his holiness where he is eternally disinclined towards sin sinners okay we're all being quiet because we told totally understand this <laughs> well I just want to, yeah, I want to walk through it well, I think it's hard to understand this, and some of this is because you re- at least I relate to my own human emotion. Right. Uh, if I hate, like forty-three, I don't think I can say I hate any person. Huh? <laughs> well, oh, good. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> I can't think of anyone that I would have what I would call that kind of emotion, but God would or does. Right. So it's so it's. it's no. I'm sorry. You said this disposition of God's yeah it emanates from his his holiness that renders him disinclined towards sin and sinners oh maybe Nancy Pelosi (laughs) (laughs) he's come up with somebody (laughs) so I was wondering like in the passage other than um John three sixteen. What other verses would we use to say that God has loves in some sense every person in the world? Oh, there's anything in, 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 top of my head. in the language or the the word that He uses for love that would give us any clues to the like the nature or the type of love? Yeah, not. I mean, only, only the context that of of. Of how he loves. Now, now it's it's possible here that we've got a, a contrast between love for Jews alone, vis-a-vis love for 
all kinds of persons. I'm not sure that works as well for John 3.16 as it does say in, in 1 John, for instance, but and, and John 1, but but I don't know if, you're, if you have any thoughts on that. Because your reformed people... John 4, too, it right. works there, but yeah. Because like my footnotes say different. See, I guess I don't see any problem with saying God loves the world in some sense, right? What What is the difficulty there? What are we struggling with? I mean, I can, I can talk what's, about... What's the problem? To my notes say, because it sprawls that thing, but it just says... <laughs> Not limited at one time or place or people, the Jews, but applies to the elect from all over the world, okay. no matter the air. So, yeah, he's res- yeah. he was guess, he I would guess, restrict. I guess it. many reformed people don't want to say he loves the world, and any that sounds too much like universal as our universal or universal atonement or something. Yeah. Right? Is that the reason? I, I guess, but you know, you still have passages where I, I, I cover them in Common Grace, where he is. Kind to the unjust and the just and the unjust, and sends his rain upon the the wicked and the righteous. Yeah. And so it, you know, so it does seem like there's an ex- expression of his kindness, his goodness that extends yeah, to all versions. But I think here it's because he sent his son, right? So right, you get in, you start getting into the atonement there. Yes. So more, you know, limited atonement could probably. Or generally say yeah. this is this is, this atonement love. Yeah, I mean it is a it is a love that's suitable for all. And, and like I say, I still think that I still think that there's something. Yeah, I mean, how is it that God is kind to the unjust and to the, and, and to the wicked? Uh, he he can't extend his his blessing and his kindness. To say, he can't look with favor. What is it, Habakkuk one thirteen? He cannot look with favor upon the unrighteous. So the fact that he does anything kind towards the non-elect or the unrighteous means that there's an expression of his love here that must flow out of some satisfaction or temporal satisfaction of the the wrath of God. You know, a withholding of God's wrath at, at that point that is an ex- expression of love to some degree. So it would be like in the same sense where Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yes, to seek their good. Yeah. The thing with hate is, you know, you know, we interpret it as it's permanent. Okay. You know, if you hate if God wouldn't hate somebody, I mean, if he hates a sinner, it's going to be going to hell. It's not going to accept him. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if that follows or not. I'm trying to think of, of usages of, of the word, but I don't know that it necessarily follows that if you hate someone, you hate them permanently. I used to hate my my, my New Testament professor at seminary. I found him now. <laughs> But you're human. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> God loves you. Be sure. <laughs> so, Rich, your point is that if, if God hated, it's hard to see how he could not hate, you know. And Well, I mean, based on the, your definition, definitely, yeah. disposition of God, 
emanates from his holiness and renders his disposition towards sin. I mean, I, yeah, I can, I can, I can buy that. I guess I just, you know, I think those part of the problem we have with with hate. I mean, to me, it just hate is severe. Okay, yeah. it's permanent. You know, so what? When God sends somebody to hell, is there any love towards that? That's a question coming up. That's question number number three. So okay. it's coming. <laughs> Are we going to get in this session? I hope so. If people keep <laughs> stop right, asking questions. <laughs> okay, so that, so that's our first objection here, and it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Second one here: If God is infinitely loving. This, one's, you know, this is a tough question, too. If God is infinitely loving, why doesn't he love everybody into heaven? He could, right? It's not as though he's, his hands are tied. And why does he sometimes stop loving people? So Hosea speaks of him loving his people, Israel, and then after the course of time and, and a continual rejection of them, uh, he he actually turns against them, and 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 it says here he he stopped loving them. So why is it that God stops loving some people? Why doesn't He love everyone exactly the same? And I think we have to admit that that's the case. Now I, I mean, it, there, sometimes there's a question here as to whether at what level God ceases to be equitable. But I think everybody has to agree it's at some point. God is inequitable. You know, some would say, okay, well, I don't believe in a limited atonement, so he died the same for everybody. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make the concession for, for sake of argument, but then you just, it backs us up to the next question. Why didn't he elect everybody? Or why didn't he regenerate everybody? Uh, at some, at some level, he was, he, he, he did not love everyone as much as he possibly could. He could love everybody immediately into heaven right now, but he doesn't. So so why is it that that's the case? Well, I start here with an answer that doesn't work. The Arminian and the open theist arguing from the priority of God's infinite love. And if you talk to any of these, particularly the open theist, uh, they'd say the primary attribute of God is his love. That just trumps everything. What's the Arminian's free will? The open, yeah. open theist. Yeah, we talked that. about maybe we were gone that week. No, uh, but, I, I, yeah, I remember okay. we talked about it. I just, yeah, the Ar- Arminian says that a, they classically look down the corridors of time. God is omniscient because he sees what's going is, what is going to happen, um, and but uh, uh, but uh, doesn't actually make it happen. He he doesn't he doesn't. So that's do, like the watchmaker. He, I, I don't know. What was it? Where the the idea where God just wound it up and let it go. No, that's not what I'm. That's no, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Okay. He, he's he's he doesn't determine anything. He looks down the corridors of time and sees what people are going to do, and then he makes his decree based on what he sees people will do. So oh. they have complete freedom, and he's just sort of changeable as. Well, what, once he once he sees it and makes it makes it his decree, it's, it's set in stone. It will happen this way. That's what that, and that's what distinguishes the Arminian from the open theist. The open theist says God can't really know anything that's going to unfold because He gives people free wills. 
And so he just really can't know what's going to happen. And, 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 and the reason, they would say, is because God is love. And, and if, if God is love, he's got to give people every possible chance. He's got to give them absolute freedom, or else he's not really love. He has to give everybody the same thing. He has to give everybody absolute freedom and the opportunity and the prospect, the possibility of embracing him, or else he's not a he's not he, he is not himself. He's he's not true to his own loving character. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I put the what the embrace the idea that God can't know what man might choose. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, because he is he, he God has made all people with absolute freedom. And so he can't know what they're going to do. He can't know what a, a f- totally free creature is going to do. But there are many that says God can know right. what an absolutely free creature can know. Yeah. But both of these groups, both groups together, both both kinds say, argue because God is love, God must love all people equally and completely. Okay. So thus you have to have a universal atonement, a universal electing work, or and, and or universal prevenient grace for the Arminian. There has to be this this raising of all people up, even though they are depraved. Raise them all to this level of neutrality. It's the only fair thing for God to do is to love everybody the same way, and then and put them in a place where they can choose God. They avoid unqualified universalism, but all people get saved by positing this idea of contracausal freedom. The reason that people don't respond to God is not because God hasn't done everything he possibly can do for them, but rather because they've rejected him. They, it was It's their fault. God did everything he possibly could do, but people didn't do their part, and that's why they go to hell. So that's the, that's the understanding here. Thus, it's not God's love that's limited. He loves everybody as much as he possibly can. The only thing that's limited is man's willingness to receive it. So I suppose you could say there is a uh, limitation to the atonement, but the only limitation to the atonement is me. You know, I, 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 I choose not to accept the atonement that's made. Just getting back to what you said, mm-hmm. uh, at some point God's love is unequitable. Right. At what point do you see that occurring? Me, I, I see it at every level here. I mean, I, I, I see inequity in the atonement. God does not die for all people equally. And when Christ died on the cross, he did not substitute. He did not remove the guilt of every single person. The reason I say that is because some people still have the guilt. Uh, so so at, at, at that level, I would say that God was not equitable. He did not die in the same sense for everyone but even if you even if you disagree with me on that at some level he didn't elect everyone he didn't regenerate everyone so so i so at some level he did not treat all people equally uh so whatever level it is one level or all these levels uh he did not treat all people equally we could quibble about what those levels are but at some level right 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 gotcha Yeah, I think growing up, I, I was in a Baptist church. We weren't free will Baptists. We were eternally secure, but I think it was the rejection of Christ was what damned you, which is 
sort of along the Arminian. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there is a sense in which we can say that the culpability does lie with the individual, but God can, but God can reverse that, and He doesn't for some people. He, he doesn't, He doesn't regenerate people so that they that they start so, so, such that they respond in faith. So, I mean, there is a sense in which it does come back to God didn't regenerate them, which is why they didn't believe. Okay. Now the Armenian theory, I suppose, makes some logical sense. You know, God makes it possible for everybody to embrace Him, and He loves everybody as, he po- as much as He possibly can. But it doesn't seem to match what the Scriptures say. So we've got Malachi one three. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, God hated one and loved the other one. So it, it, it doesn't seem to give. He's almost of a chance here. Same with uh, Romans 9. He prepares some vessels for destruction. He prepares others uh, for for eternal life. So on and so forth. We can look at all of these. But uh, I think at, at some level, God doesn't love everyone the same. He actually uh, uh, doesn't. Uh, he, he doesn't treat people equally. It's better to say, I think, <clears throat> here's perhaps where it, Here's the theological answer, but it may not be satisfying. Nonetheless, I'll give it to you here. It's better to say that God necessarily has love in himself that is infinite in nature. So his love in say is infinite. He is infinitely self-loving. But it does not oblige him to communicate this love in an infinite way. We'd say that about any of his attributes, right? He does not communicate any of his attributes infinitely to his creatures. So God's attributes are all infinite and say, but he nonetheless remains independent as to their communication. Therefore, God may, in accordance with his own will and decree, extend his love in a particular manner without being subject in any sense to criticism, which is the point in Romans 9. Who are you to ask why one vessel was prepared for destruction and one is prepared for mercy. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Can the potter, obviously, can can the pot say to the potter, what are you doing? Well, no, you can't, because that's the choice of the potter. So uh, it seems to, seems to be as best I can do with that. Uh, I don't know if you have any follow-ups on that. Well, God, God is perfectly holy. And all his attributes are complete balance. I mean, there's no way we, I mean, we, we're trying to understand God. We can understand God through his word and what he does, whether it's election or where his, you know, love becomes unequitable. But, you know, we can completely trust God that he is just in all that he does. I mean, there's no way that we can, or I'm not going to say that I understand everything here. I can see from scripture where he lacks. And, you know, whether it's limited atonement or, or next level's election, you know, I mean, he's perfectly just in whatever he does. That's easier for me to understand. Well, true. I mean, it is. But at the same time, I think the question sometimes comes up, well, God is, God is infinite. And so his love must be infinite. And if his love is infinite, then everybody gets saved because God loves everybody the same way. And there does seem to be have to be some sort of an answer, like, well, no, but he's still because, holy. Yeah. right? 
be stolen. Right. Sure. Yeah, the only way that would happen is that if he didn't have Christ's sacrifice, because we know people don't come to Christ, so they're not saved, right? That makes sense. But nobody, no mercy. No, I mean, if he wanted to save everyone, it would have been just come on, right? Yeah. I mean, that's because certainly his prerogative. Kind of destroys free will, though. Well, everything's been determined for you. <laughs> well, he doesn't coerce, but he does render it necessary. It's hard to find like slice between those two. See, I figure if you're a slow learner, we got eternity to learn it. <laughs> We're going to need it, brother. <laughs> Do you have any extra thoughts on that, Bill? Okay. Well, I'm just. He's, he's, praying, like he's, he's praying for us all right now. <laughs> no, it's just that, I mean, John's question was free will, but you know, we're, it wouldn't make any difference whether he elected all of us or a certain amount. That wouldn't change. The will would still work the same way, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. the will would still work the same way. Yeah. We, we, think we, sit, we think we have free will now, or we're not going to call it free will, but we have uh, freedom of choice. We're not coerced. So. Even if God elected everybody, wouldn't change that equation. That's true. Okay. I was going to say about the Arminian thing, but I don't know. If, I know Dave mentioned that he was in this church. We have plenty of time, so I can talk. Right. Well, I don't think I don't ever remember hearing talk about the word regeneration used. Yeah. But when we when Mark is using the term Arminian here, he's using it because he wants to distinguish between a Calvinistic idea of God's electing certain people, God choosing, or on the other alternative, would we choose God? So you were in a church that was not classically Arminian because you believe you could keep your salvation. Yeah, I heard the pat. One of our pastors say it was a Calvarminian. Most of the churches I've been to, Baptist churches in the south and forth, I mean, they're really, they're Arminian in the sense that they they don't believe in unconditional election. But they're not Arminian in the sense they believe you can keep it. They believe eternal security. Yeah, So it's, it's really inconsistent Arminianism in the sense of this, that if you believe, if you believe you choose God and you're the determining factor, and why can't you unchoose God? That's where our, our, the real Arminian friends, people who lose, believe you can lose your salvation, like Pastor Ken's church, where he came from, they're really more consistent because they believe we, we chose God, we're the determining factor, therefore we can decide not to not to believe. But most Baptists are inconsistent Arminians in the sense they believe we get to choose, we're the determining factor, it's not up to God, it's up to us. But... Once we choose, we can't unchoose. That's what I was. You said I was an Arminian church. Well, I wouldn't have called it an Arminian church. It would have been what you said. Exactly, yeah. So we use the term Arminian here to cover people who are inconsistent Arminians, most of our Baptist friends, and real Arminians who are like Church of the Nazarene, Church of God, Pentecostal, or. What other kind of Arminians? No, I Methodist. Would, uh, I would say the last pastor at our church was probably much more Calvinist, but I think he treaded lightly. What on. kind of church was this? 
was uh, First Baptist Woodhaven. Okay. First well, Baptist no. or Woodhaven Bible? Woodhaven Bible. But, Woodhaven it, was, Bible. but it was... No. First Baptist Woodhaven. It was all Baptist names. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was all... It, like we were Baptist the whole time. It was. I think it is, isn't it? It's right near you right there. It's right up the street. Right up the street from you. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about it. I've looked at their website. It looks like it's kind of a typical... Okay, Rich's next question here. <laughs> if God is all loving, is there love in hell then? Okay, so or is is love gone there? Well, hell is punitive and not remedial, so it's not as though God's trying to rescue people out of hell. Once they're there, they're there. There's there's no remediation at that point. So whatever love that God shows to the damned is very limited. <coughs> There's perhaps a sense that we can say that God is benevolent in assigning degrees of punishment. He doesn't punish people equally. He doesn't, uh, so it would be better for you than it was, you know, for, for the, he says of, for the folks at Capernaum, uh, it would be, it would be better for the folks at Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, I guess is what it said, to, uh, and then it would be, uh, for uh, for you, because you've sinned against greater light, uh, and so in the day of judgment, there's a, there must be some sense in which some people are punished more severely than others. I don't know what that means. If there's hotter places in hell or what, it's, it's it's not really clear what those degrees of punishment would look like. But the fact that he doesn't hate everyone equally, perhaps you could suggest is a as a kind of backhanded love, perhaps. But I say here, it's a rather meager expression of love. It's probably best to answer, as in the question above, that God is not obliged to manifest his love to the damned. Although, I would add this, none of the damned can rightly claim never to have been a beneficiary to some degree of God's love, as long-suffering, as kindness, as goodness. So, uh, I, I don't know if that helps. But, why, why would you say none of the damned can rightly claim to never have been a beneficiary of God's love? Well, because if God's love is extended to all in in life, they would have all experienced it, known it to some degree, even though they didn't weren't converted. So even the fetus. <laughs> we we're, weren't we're going to get into both babies going to have I was going to trap him here. <laughs> but that'd be a good argument for babies going to heaven. It would. Your argument right here would be, you know. Right. Although I don't know that that necessarily no, no, I know, I know it, means means much, but, but, right. but at least as the way you expressed it, yeah, you're thinking of rational creatures, right? Experience the love of God, right, right, right. Another question here, and this is, yeah, these are all tough here, but... Uh, who's, who's coming up with these questions? <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just a glutton here. For, but uh, since, since God's holiness manifests itself in hatred for all that is not God, is it appropriate for us to hate as well? And I put down here one of the imprecatory psalms. You know, a... Do not do I not hate those who hate you, O God? I hate them with a perfect hatred. 
Is that an appropriate expression? Can we say that? Can we say, uh, you know, I, you know, I, no, I hate Hitler or I hate uh, whatever uh, Osama bin Laden? Is it ever appropriate for us to say I hate or pray down judgment upon somebody who's a particularly evil person? Is it ever appropriate for us to do this? Well, I say here that David and other scripture writers uttered such imprecations has to mean something. It strongly suggests that certain manifestations of hatred are, or at least were, acceptable. Some would say it was appropriate in that age, but it's no longer appropriate. But certainly we can say that if it's part of scripture here, that it certainly was appropriate, and I would think is appropriate, Some would limit the appropriateness to objects that are explicitly named as recipients of covenant curses. So, for instance, God promises to David and to Abraham that he will uh, curse those who curse you. And so if if someone is is, uh, violent towards the Israelite people, then all we're doing is saying, God, deliver on your promise here. Uh, curse these people because you promised to do so. And so some would restrict imprecations to occasions where we know God intends to judge. It's possible. However, the motivation for imprecations that we find in Psalms, in the Psalms and elsewhere, seems broader than just these covenant kinds of reasons. And Psalm 7, which we read a piece of here earlier, uh, we find that uh, that these imprecation uh, an imprecation was here. Please punish them so that your righteousness will be established. Please punish them so that your name will be glorified. Uh, punish here in in the third occasion, uh, Psalm fifty eight, so that God's justice will be magnified. You know, so uh, so here here's a, here are calls for uh, uh, for for violence in order to establish uh, the uh, righteousness of God, to magnify his sovereignty, to protect God's holiness. Judge these people because you're a holy God and people won't believe it if you don't judge. And then sometimes it's to impel people to seek God. So it does seem like the Old Testament imprecations are broader than just these covenant uh, curses here. There's also contemporary relevance. Uh, okay, the contemporary relevance of these concerns, coupled with New Testament evidence of imprecations as well, seems to complicate this still further. You know, Paul breathes out an anathema right against those who preach another gospel. Maybe may they be cursed. Maybe they'd be damned. And so he's so he's there. We find several of these in the New Testament. Uh, so it's it's not a covenant curse here in this case. It's a it's a New Testament, New Testament situation. So it suggests here that imprecations are not dispensationally bound or necessarily incompatible with Christ's command for us to love and pray for our enemies. However, I caution here that the believer's proclivity to mingle such imprecations with unholy passions personal vindictiveness probably should caution us 
against their casual everyday use. I, I wouldn't think it ought to be part of our everyday prayer list. You know, Tuesday. So it's not necessarily <laughs> an, an individual. It's not an individual uh, hate that you would have. It's a disposition towards sin. Yeah, and, I, a, and I think that's a disposition towards the right. way that they're treating God. But we don't have a right to hate. Right. Again, again, again that, there, there's that passion coming because in. Because sin is against God. It's not right. against us individuals. Right, yeah, and, and, and so we, when we hate, we tend to hate because we're vindictive or because we're just unrighteously angry. Right. Um, and so for those reasons, I'd probably be hesitant to, you know, put, you know, put that on your prayer list every Tuesday, pray down an imprecation on somebody. <laughs> but what about Jim Acosta? The Democrats. <laughs> what about Jim Acosta? I mean, doesn't deserve a little hate. Which is Trump does. Who's that? He's this White House reporter that's always... Uh, yeah. Oh, CNN. Acosta? Yeah, CNN. Yeah, okay, from yes. CNN. Yeah. Yeah. Trump, Trump's going to get him. Trump's going to get him. When we were, I was thinking of David. His heart, uh, he was close to God's heart. So I think the closer Paul, David, were to God's heart, they're speaking almost prophetically forget. I, I, I suppose, but I don't know that any of us is Well, I wouldn't say, the, I don't trust myself to right. not be where, what you, where you said. Right. Uh, right. I don't think so. Uh, possibility that, that we're just seeing David write down his his feelings that it's almost like um, it's descriptive and not prescriptive. It's possible, but there's so many of them. It just seems... It seems too much to say. Okay, all these all these good people are in the Old Testament. You know, Paul uh, prayed down an imprecation. David prayed down imprecations. Now they did it, but you know they they were wrong. Seems hard. It's hard. Seems hard for me to, to fathom that. But I, I'm sure some people do argue that way. I'm I'm just not sure I'm quite there. So my answer is I I don't see any reason why an imprecation. In principle, is something that a that that a that a believer can't do. Although I, I think there's an awful lot of cautions that go alongside of that. Too. So, other thoughts? I, so that, yeah, I just don't see how we can do it, you know, righteously. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, because what, we're, what if we're, you have somebody who is, you know, the Galatians one. Anybody who preaches any other gospel, let them be accursed. Um, if you have somebody who is really destroying the church, really, uh, there's a sense that we, we could hate that or hate them or sure hate I'm their not, sin. Well, but, not but it would be them. to me more of a plea to God that they would be accursed, right? Well, he's the righteous judge. Not? Well, to to pray that they be accursed, I think, is to express a level of hatred. Yeah. Or so, you know, and then Jonah would have been justified then, right? Well, no. I recall my, least, my grandfather. I think it means that we shouldn't, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with being <laughs> upset and condemning of a person like that. I mean, somebody might say, oh, this person is preaching a false gospel, but let's. Let's just pray for them that they get their life turned. Oh, we should pray that they'll turn their life around. But there's nothing wrong, probably, with yeah. hating the fact of 
what's going on. And, and it'd be better, it might be better that God just kill this person rather than yeah. destroy the church. Or, you know, I'm, yeah, I think you're right. We've got to be very cautious. But some people would say you can't even say what I just said, that you couldn't say it'd be better for this person to die. Oh, we can't say that. Let's pray for them to be saved. Well, that's, yeah, we want them to be saved, but just if they're doing this loving. much damage, it might be better, <laughs> you know, in God's hands that they yeah. be eliminated. So. Yeah, I remember my grandfather saying he, he prayed that God would take out some Supreme Court justices. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> Jim McCoster. <right? laughs> What was, what was her name? That's <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay. There was a movie about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the manifestations of God's love. So, what does the. We, we talk of. There's several other attributes that we speak of uh, that I think are extensions of the love or perhaps nuances of the love. Love, as I say, in the ontological realm, it goes to all image bearers. God loves people who are like him, those in his image. Mercy and long-suffering are terms that are uh, often classified as attributes. They, they show up in the practical realm, and they seem to be extended toward miserable people. God has mercy upon people. God has pity upon people who are in a miserable state. And then grace is in the judicial realm. It is it is God's love extended towards guilty persons in the uh, in the in the legal realm. So let's look at these these nuanced uh, uh, features of God's love. So mercy and long suffering, uh, mercy being His compassion, pity, and gentleness towards miserable sinners. Here, and and the, and the term here when it, when we find it in Scripture often displays this great tenderness of feeling. This term, bowels of mercy. I know that doesn't sound all that nice to us here, but 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 it's but it's a very graphic manifestation of the depth. It goes all the way down in the innermost part of my being. I, I just feel so. Okay. Um, and then also long-suffering, an aspect of God's mercy that involves the postponement, mitigation, withholding of deserved judgment. Some don't call this an attribute, but it, it, and because if there is no, again, if there is no sin, then long-suffering doesn't seem to work. Uh, but it's, it's in so many lists, I've, I've classified this mercy and long-suffering as, a, as an attribute. And we have plenty of proof of this. Psalm 78, he was merciful, forgiving their iniquities, and not destroying them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. It was a a muted expression of his wrath. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering in King James, abounding in love. He will not always accuse. He will not harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Second Corinthians, God is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, comforting us in our troubles. So again, this idea of miserable sinners. He comforts us in our trouble. God is great love. He is rich in mercy. 
so how does it, how does this show up in withholding judgment? Greater you in mercy because you did not put an end to them, because you're a gracious and merciful God. Mercy is shown in saving lost sinners in their distress. He was distressed, distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity, his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them on the way. Also, there's the great tenderness of, of of expression here. And caring for his creatures. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for all who fear him. So these are the manifestations of God's mercy. Of course, we're all, we've all experienced this. Um, and uh, this whole idea of God delaying is, is an expression of his mercy. And so uh, we find this as a, uh, a, a, you know, a particularly, uh, you know, enjoyable thought of this enjoyable attribute of God. God is merciful to us. Grace of God, then, is in the legal realm. And it says, undeserved, unearned, unrecompensed, unwanted favor of God towards guilty sinners. So he's the God of all grace. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his grace. Those who receive the abundance of grace and righteousness will reign through in life through the one Jesus Christ. So there are plenty of, again, this is, there's oodles of passages to talk about the grace of God. What does that look like? Well, we have two manifestations of God's grace that we find. Common and special grace. We've used these terms already uh, in this class, uh, but let's just talk briefly about them. Common grace, common grace is the operation of the Holy Spirit among all men, whereby he restrains the effects of sin globally, enables the positive performance of civic righteousness, causes people to act appropriately even even though they hate God, and grants all varieties of non-salvific benefits. And so we've got these passages here that we've sort of referenced already. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, and he's good to all. He is compassionate on everything that he has made. So again, this is another uh, expression here of the fact that love extends to all uh, in some sense. Luke 6 especially. He is kind even to ungrateful and wicked men. So there's an expression of love in the form of grace, kindness, benevolence, goodness that he extends to all creatures, even wicked ones. But then there's a... Is there there another, a better verse for common grace than those two listed there? Um, In a sense that he restrains the effects of sin? Yeah, um... Well, yeah. I mean, I think we, we we've actually seen a couple of them already. You know, he doesn't put a he he he. I mean, he's a he, there's a restraint that is exercised in in Thessalonians uh, where that was. Spirit acting in the church is, is a is a restraint upon the expression of sin, so that 
when the church is removed, all restraint is removed as well. Um, trying to think of other passages. Okay. Matthew five about he makes the sun shine on the right yeah that's the positive expression yeah so we've got and we've got we've got that in Acts two he's Acts Acts fourteen and seventeen where God sends rain and sunshine on on all in order that people might seek God and reach out for Him but but he I think you were looking specifically for the restraining aspect. Romans two four yeah Romans two four was that uh, or do you know or do you yes. show contempt for the riches and his kindness forbearance and patience not resonate God's kindness and tend to lead repentance yeah Romans two four is Second Peter three nine what is that I don't have any memory but I got a good computer <laughs> <laughs> about Acts yeah. seventeen the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises and patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repent is that I don't know if the restraint idea is there but but yeah it's certainly an expression of that what about Acts 17 30 what does that say and in that grace is a is an expression of God's Love. I think we have to say that. We have to say that love is extended to all that are recipients of this common grace. Um, I mean, it's 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 a it's a limited expression of God's grace, but it's a true expression of God's grace. But it falls short of special grace, which is what I call saving grace. God's grace toward specific men whom He saves. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by His grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So special grace is saving grace, but common grace is something that's extended to all persons uh, in the image of God, at least to some degree. Okay? You know, we're really behind, so let's see if we can't real quickly just run through the simplicity of God. I, uh, I, I think we can do it quickly here. Um, otherwise, we're never going to make it through here. So uh, let's talk about this. Uh, before we talk about the tri-unity of God, that God is three in one, we have to talk about the fact that he is one. And I think that's 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 uh, that's primary, which first, before we can talk about his threeness, we have to talk about his oneness. So what we mean by this is that there's one essence in the Godhead. This one essence, wholly, equally, eternally, pervades each one of three persons without any division or multiplication. There aren't three gods, there's one God. Nor can God be broken up into beings or parts he can't be divided up. So, uh, so, the, so this is uh, the. So, when we use the word simplicity, what we mean here is not that he's easy to understand, but it's more like the idea of a simple machine that there's no there's no 
parts. Okay, it's just a you know, it's just a lever or a ramp or something of that nature. It's 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 a simple machine. So the simplicity of God means that He's one. With respect to His attributes, this means that God is what His attributes are. He's not a collection of ten or twelve or fifteen attributes, but He's a synthesis, a compound rather than a mixture, if we can. Each of God's attributes qualifies the other in that all the attributes qualify the whole. So we can't we can't just sort of tease out one attribute and 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 make it more important than the others. They all rise and fall together. With respect to his essence, then, it means that God's three persons do not create in God parts that function independently of each other. And uh, we sort of have to, because we've already mentioned it, let's see if we can't define a little bit what an essence and what a person is, uh, which is going to come back and help us when we talk about the Trinity then, when we come back next time. By essence is meant the nature or the substance of a thing, that which constitute it, and without which it would cease to be what it is. In finite beings, this this is a form, so... You know, it's something material, physical here. Uh, But God has no form, has no physical form. So his essence is what his attributes are. We've already said that, right? So his essence is, his substance is the, the concatenation of all of his attributes into one. So when we're talking about a person then, we're talking about a distinct relational individual and probably the underlying word there is relational okay a person is is relative to other persons he's relational to other persons so it's a relational individual who has an essence or a nature okay so a person this term is actually very difficult to define we can't substitute the term being because it risks predicating complete independence or separate essences for the three members of the Trinity. There there are not three different beings. There are not three separate essences or substances. There is one substance in three persons. So uh, we, we can't say that God is firstly three. He's firstly one with three relational persons within it. Alternatives of form or mode of being so emphasize the unity that the threeness is jeopardized. And so we've got other uh, problems here where you know the, the unity of God is so important that we 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 deny that there are three persons. And these are these are tendencies that we're going to see throughout this whole Trinitarian debate. There's a there's a seesaw battle throughout church history. Uh, some saying that God is one only and others saying that God is three and not one so there's there's this back and forth we find throughout church history uh, between the threeness of God and the oneness of God to the exclusion of the other and we can't afford to do either God is three and he is one simultaneously uh, so you know some you know if you want to know what a person is some actually use the Greek word hypostasis because you can't you can't define it, so let's just use the Greek word. Uh, I'm not sure that really helps us, but uh, it still is used sometimes in 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 theology. In theology is an untranslatable term, really. So, 
What does this mean? How do we how do we demonstrate this? Well, Deuteronomy six four. This is the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe that God is one. You do well. So one, the oneness of God. Each of the three persons is recognized as being this one essence. All the persons are simultaneously God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And all three of them are called God. You can see that in those passages. On Christ, the Father God has set his seal. About the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, which means he lied to God. So all three of them are God, even though they are relational to, relative to one another. And they're all the same God. Father and the Son are one. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. And for this reason, the Jews accused him of blasphemy for claiming to be God. John, uh, John 14, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, sometimes called the circumcessionism of God, this, this intermingling here. We're all, they're, they're one in some sense. Uh, that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit is, is this God. So the Father and the Spirit are one. The Son and the Spirit. Sometimes we see references to the Spirit of God. Other times we see references to the Spirit of Christ. Are we talking about a separate spirit? No. Uh, we're talking about uh, separate persons within this one God. Okay? And the indwelling work. We normally attribute this to the Holy Spirit, but we find that it's true of the rest of the persons as well. The Spirit will be with you forever. I, Jesus, will come to you and my Father, and we will all come to him and make our home with him. So there's this sense in which all the persons are involved in the indwelling work of God. So, even though each of the persons of God can be described as having distinct functions, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So, there's separate functions within the Godhead. The whole Godhead, holy equally and eternally pervades all three persons without division or multiplication. So they're all, always God. So for this reason, it's not always possible to posit strict lines of demarcation in Trinitarian function, you know, indwelling. Normally we think of the indwelling of the Spirit, but sometimes we find that we're, we're the dwelling place of Christ and the dwelling of the Father. The normal pattern is to pray to God, by the Spirit, through the Son, but we can pray to the Son directly, uh, So, because they're, they're, they're one. And so, and so for this reason, it's, uh, there's this, this, this confusion here, perhaps. While in creation the Father plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit maintains, sometimes we find that Christ is maintaining the universe. Colossians 1, oh, by him all things hold together. I thought it was the spirit hovering over the waters, holding everything. Well, yeah, God, yeah, God's doing this, and so uh, there's this there's this interchange and interplay of the persons at times when you don't expect it, sort of demonstrating that all of God is at work when any one of them is. 
And so we call this sometimes the perichoresis or circumcession of God, this idea that the, the godness circulates within them all. It's the idea of that term, per- perichoresis. Shed calls it the in-being of God. So all three persons of the Godhead share in the life of the others such that none of the essence or function of any one person is totally independent of the others. Uh, so, you know, we sometimes talk about Christ giving up the independent use of his attributes, but really that doesn't make any sense because none of the members of the Godhead ever has purely independent use of his attributes. They're always they're always exercising the attributes of God in conjunction with one another and with the consent of all the persons of the Trinity simultaneously. It's not like one is just going off as a maverick on his own and doing things that the rest of the uh, Godhead doesn't approve of. They're always they're always in concert. However, this overlap of function is not total. The Father sent the Son, never to reverse. Christ died, and only Christ. The Father didn't die. But even on this historically volatile issue, we are made well aware in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that the fullness of God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So no activity of God is accomplished by one person of the Godhead in strict independence of the others. And this is going to come back, and we're going to have to talk about some certain things when we talk about the Trinity and and and, and such. But uh, for now, I, we want to stress the fact that before we can talk about God being three, we have to we have to stay and say that He is one, and we can't and we can't ever give up on that. Okay, so it's a, perhaps a doctrine that's not it's it's underappreciated, but it's certainly something that we want to talk about. Uh, before we get into this idea of Trinity. Thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, we'll, when we come back next time, we'll talk about the Trinity, triunity of God. However, that won't be for another three weeks, right? Next week, I am in Denver at a professional conference. And then the following week is the night before Thanksgiving and yeah, a lot of people will be uh, whooping it up with family and such, so we, we won't we'll plan not to do anything that night. So we won't come back until, what is it, November 28th? 